Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 116 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. It snowed today. Today's November 9th, 8th or 9th. And I woke up this morning and thought to myself, huh, the road looks dusty and it was snow. So it was actually really pretty and not enough snow to be any sort of accumulation, but enough to make driving a bit tricky. I did a live this morning and I talked about birds building nests and, and mothers nesting before they have their babies. And it was centered around my kitchen remodel, which of course is full of emotional ups and downs, but I have this, my building company is called Nest. And I think it's the perfect name for a building company because Eric, the carpenter, the lead worker on the project really owns it. He feels like he's taking care of my nest. He gets it. So anyway, it's been sort of an emotional 24 hours with woodwork disappearing and doors appearing where there weren't doors before. And there's the chimney and oh my goodness, there's some plumbing and all the things that live inside a house, which are really just fantastic. We also found a pile of stuff in the walls, which is also amazing. Crayons and toys, books, magazines, newspapers, hats, all sorts of artifacts. We're going to put together a time capsule to put back in when we rebuild, when we rebuild the wall. So that's really exciting. Episode 116. As we all know, I've recently published a book and I'm starting to get, I'm starting to get feedback from the book, what people think, what it did for them. What I love about Virginia McGregor and her writing is that her books are quick reads, meaning you get sucked in, so you don't want to put it down. And the size of print and the nature of the story makes it easy to read. So it's not like you have to focus and focus and hyper-concentrate. The words just wash over you. It's a wonderful way to read. And I'm really, really glad that, that a lot of people who read my book sit down and open it, and they don't stand up again until they close it, which is reminiscent of some of my best childhood reading experiences. I can remember one of my favorite things to do on Fridays was go to the library and get a pile of books. And I'd bring them home and put them on my bedside table, especially if it was cruddy weather over the weekend. And I'd wake up Saturday morning and I would just pick up a book and read. And sometimes I'd stay in bed and read it until I read the whole thing. My mom would peek around like, are you okay? Like, I'm fine. I'm just reading. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to read a chapter from the book. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what went into the chapter. This chapter I'm going to read today is called Not Another Mora. When I was 10, my best friend at the time, Mora Spellman, died of cancer. She had some sort of tumor in her tummy. I don't know the details because as was the case in 1973, you didn't talk about these things. And all I knew was that Mora disappeared. She stopped coming to school. There were all these stories and rumors that her appendix burst and, you know, all the playground talk that goes on when nobody will tell the kids anything. There was never even an, an announcement by teachers, nothing. It would just, she was in school one day and that was it. She would never came back. So that was fourth grade for me. What I remember most about Mora on the playground is her veracity in playing kickball. She was just a hardcore tomboy. One of my favorite pictures of Mora and me, we're both wearing the same overalls. They're little denim overalls with a red pocket right in the front off on the chest. And we both had the same ones. Mora was someone that I could just be comfortable with. She was a tomboy like me. I just loved her. She, she just was somebody that I connected with. And I think we would have stayed friends all through, you know, elementary and middle school and high school. She came from a family of six girls. And I knew Ellen, her older sister, through gymnastics. And I knew Sheila, her younger sister, just because Sheila was kind of around our age. I didn't know the other sisters super well. I knew of them and that was all. I do know that when she died, my friend Jill and my friend Terry and myself walked by ourselves to her funeral. We wore our first day of school dresses before the first day of school. Her funeral was in August, just before the start of fifth grade. 
And I was befuddled by the whole thing. I didn't know what I was listening to, what I was hearing. I also felt some criticism that we were there at a funeral, that it wasn't a place for children. We wanted to go to the cemetery as well, and we weren't allowed to do that. And so we walked back home and we talked about what it was like to lose Mora. One of the most vivid memories for me visually is that little white casket going down the center aisle of the church. Although I don't know how many funerals I might've been to by that time, I knew that a small white casket was an aberration, that it was wrong. And then I couldn't see up front. I could hear the mom crying. And I felt like how I visioned it in my head, because I thought I heard a squeak. I'm like, oh my God, they're opening the casket, which of course they weren't. The casket was closed. It wasn't an open casket funeral. I don't know if there were calling hours. We didn't get to go to those. But I do know that I heard the mother make noises that made no sense to me. I, I felt like I wasn't listening to a human. And, you know, years later, in the wake of being told Molly that we were too late, I remember hearing a noise and thinking that's an odd noise and then realizing it was me, that I was making the noise. That's a hard thing to explain to people. People look at me like, how can you not know you're making a noise? But when you get a rush, when you get a piece of information like this, like your child is never going to wake up or we're too late, or the, some of the things that were said to us, the ocean rushes in, at least this is what happened to me. And there's this roaring, roaring, roaring in your head. And that's through which you hear everything actually going on around you. Voices become far away and they get loud and soft. And so my screams sounded far away to me at the time. And I didn't know what the noise was. And then I realized it was me. And a lot of my memories of Mora come up when I think of that moment in my journey to losing Molly. Another moment that comes to mind for me is at our family funeral at the cemetery, the graveside service. I didn't invite any of Molly's friends to that because that isn't what I wanted them to see. They all got to say goodbye to her at the hospital. And then they came to Molly be the musical. And that was a very much, here's what we love about Molly. Here's how I can pay my respects to Molly. So the small graveside service was just my family, very small, maybe 30 people altogether, maybe 40, but that's it. And then, you know, Molly B. the musical had over a thousand people. And so to me, that's the most important message right there, that the painful box going into the ground, Molly's casket was pink. That was just a piece that, you know, I have pictures. That's how I remember it. So I'm going to read the chapter. And one of the big questions people asked at the time, and I think, one of the questions that has come up a couple of times from people who read the book or comments is the correlation between me losing Mora and how much that experience impacted how I handled Molly's death. So I'm going to read the chapter. So bear with me. So it's chapter 11 in the book, and it's called Not Another Mora. From the moment I was told that Molly wasn't coming back to us, I knew with a great sense of clarity that I didn't want her death to be kept silent. I didn't want her final days to be hidden or private or for people to find out about her death through word of mouth or a newspaper article. I wanted anyone who had come in contact with Molly's brief and beautiful life to have the chance to say goodbye. One of the reasons I did this was because of Maura, my best friend in fourth grade. One day she was there at school, right beside me, and then she was gone. I loved her and I never got to say goodbye. It was a different time. In the 1970s, children were kept in the dark about most things. There was a thick curtain drawn between the world of childhood and the adult world. There were so many secrets. Perhaps the grown-ups saw the secrecy as a form of protection. They didn't want to hurt our young feelings or give us too much to carry. The truth was that it didn't protect us or ease our burdens. 
It made us feel scared and powerless and angry for being kept in the dark. We have learned, rightly, to be much more open with our children, to trust that the truth is always better in the long run than a cover-up. Maura didn't come back for ages, weeks passed, and then months. I remember asking my mom whether I could call her and say hi, but she said that we should wait to hear from Maura. I remember feeling so detached from her, and at the same time, as I looked at her empty desk, as I spent recess alone, I missed her, and I didn't know what to do to get her back. She didn't come back for the rest of the school year. That summer, I bumped into her by chance as I was riding my bike home from summer school. It felt like I was seeing a ghost. I went straight over to her to say hi. We visited all morning. We picked up right where we left off. It felt so, so good to see her. I walked her back home, pushing my green bike alongside her. She lifted her t-shirt and proudly showed me her scars. She said that she had a tumor in her stomach. I remember looking wide-eyed at the long, jagged line that ran between her chest and her belly button. And there were horizontal lines, too, like someone had drawn a huge zipper down her torso. She must have sensed my horror. It's okay, she said. Now that the tumor's been taken out, I'm going to get better. The doctor said I should go for walks to build up my strengths. Maybe you can come with me. We made plans to walk again. I'd help her get strong, and then after the summer, Maura would come back to school, and we'd be best friends again, play kickball at recess, and forget all about those strange weeks and months when she dropped out of my life. It was the last time I ever saw Maura. The tumor she'd had was cancerous. It killed her. I found out about her death when my friend Terry showed me her obituary in the newspaper. When I saw it, I broke down in tears. If I'd known Maura was dying, I'd have tried harder to see her, to help her, to say goodbye at least. As I think back to her cheerful words about getting better and coming back to school, I wonder if even she was kept in the dark about the fact that she was dying. I yelled at my mother, an OR nurse who had taken part in some of Maura's operations for not telling me what had happened, what was happening. Maura's family wanted it to be kept secret, she said. We had to respect their privacy. But that just felt like an excuse to me. I was so devastated that I wasn't told that she was dying and that I wasn't given the chance to say goodbye. A week later, I walked to her funeral with two of our friends, Terry and Jill. We wore our first day of school dresses. We watched Maura's white casket being carried past us down the aisle of the church. It was closed, so we didn't even get to see her face. She was buried on the far side of a cemetery near the prison. It would be almost 20 years before I would see her grave. I was walking with some of my students through the cemetery my first year teaching. Seeing her name on the stone brought me to my knees. All of the sadness, anger, and grief came rushing back. It was like no time had passed at all. I was glad that my students could witness that, that I could open up about what happened to Maura by talking to them about it. Fifth grade started without Maura, and eventually I thought of her less and less. I made new best friends. Looking back, I'm shocked at how easy it was for her to disappear and for all of us to move on. It was Maura's story that made it clear to me that there would be no secrecy around Molly's death and that anyone who wanted to find out what happened to her and anyone who wanted to say goodbye would be given the chance to do just that. In those days when I invited the world to come and spend time with Molly, I was interviewed by a local TV station. They asked me how I had it in me to be so generous to give the little time I had left with Molly to others. I replied that she didn't really belong to me. She's at an age when I drop her off at school in the morning at 8.30, and sometimes I don't see her again until 8.30 at night, I explained to the interviewer. 
And in those hours when she isn't with me, she's somebody's student, somebody's best friend, and somebody's dancer, and somebody's sister. She isn't mine during all those hours. And to keep her from the people who loved her when she's leaving feels selfish to me. But it was more than that, too. It was because of Mora. I didn't want Molly to slip away like Mora had, or to be forgotten, or for her friends to feel betrayed because no one told them what was happening to her. I needed to invite the world in to say goodbye. It was my way of fighting against the secrecy of my childhood, of righting the wrong of the way Mora's death had been handled. And it was also my way of surviving. I understand that some families and some mothers have a profound need for privacy. I've lost count of the number of times people have asked me how I managed it, having so many people around, being so public about everything. The truth is that I needed people and their support. How could I not? How could I just sit there alone and stare at Molly as life seeped out of her? Having shared that dark time with so many continues to help me today, knowing that she didn't go through it alone, that Molly didn't just disappear. Death is hard anyway. The death of a child even harder. The sudden and unexplained death of a child, harder still. No one was expecting Molly to die. They had a right to be given an explanation and a chance to say goodbye, to be part of her legacy. And I needed to see the world say goodbye to her because it was an acknowledgement that she'd been a part of all of our lives, that she'd mattered, and that something terrible had happened to her, something that was not okay, and that now she was gone. That trip in the graveyard with my students. When I first moved back to Concord, I taught at Second Start, which is an alternative high school. So the students that go there have whatever issues that prevent them from really succeeding in public school and in a big setting. And it was right near the cemetery in which Moore is buried, which is next to the cemetery that Molly's buried in. And it was a rainy day. And a lot of these kids, you know, had alcohol and drug issues and they smoked cigarettes and all. And so I was, you know, certified PE teacher. So I would take them for walks and it counted as PE. And so we tried to accumulate enough miles over the school year to walk across the country. I think we made it to Kansas. Anyway, on this particular day, we were walking in the cemetery because there's no traffic there. And we were looking at, we're looking at gravestones and reading them and pondering the lives of these people. And all of a sudden I saw it, Mora. And I always remembered her spelling her name, M-A-U-R-A. That's how I remember it in my head. But on the, on the gravestone, it was M-O-I-R-A, Moira. And so I stopped. And of course, there it was, Spellman. And I looked on the back and there was her birth date and her death date. That sound I just talked about before reading the chapter, the ocean rushing through my head, that's exactly what happened to me. And I lost sort of sensation in my whole body. It was a misty, rainy day and the grass was a bit wet. And I fell to my knees and I just started sobbing. And my students were just looking at me like, what? This one boy, I think his name was Derek. He looked at me like, are you okay? Like, are you okay? And I wasn't okay. And so I told them, I told them that this was the first time I was seeing her grave since she died when I was 10. And at this time I was 28, I believe. So that was 18 years. I think it was 27, but regardless, 17, 18 years after her death was the first time I saw her grave. That's how much she just disappeared. How much we were discouraged and not encouraged to visit her grave, to have closure, to understand that as traumatic as early death is, it's a part of life. We all will die. And so I had this massive breakdown in front of my students. What was great about it is we all sat in a circle. The agreement with walking is that they wouldn't smoke during PE class, but they all smoked cigarettes and, and it wasn't illegal at the time. I think you could smoke under the age of 18 back then. And so I'm like, if you guys want to have a cigarette, I'm fine. And so we sat there for like 
half an hour and we just talked about it. We talked about Maura. I told them the story. Each of them had a death story to share. And each of them said, we never get to talk about this stuff. And this was now, you know, she died in 1973 and this was 1990. So, you know, it was 17 years later, 18 years later, and still talking about death is like a taboo. I think part of it is that if we talk about it, it makes it real. And part of what makes life livable is to deny that it's going to end. And it's what makes child loss so lonely. People don't want to talk to me about Molly because if my child died, it means their child could die. And so it's best to just not talk about it. Nope, 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 nope. Put it out of your mind. And I understand that. And that makes sense in certain situations. There are times you have to box up your feelings and put them away. But in terms of life, I don't know how Moore's family is. The only person I ever saw after Moore's death, I saw Alan at gymnastics camp and I saw Sheila years and years later in my young adult life when I first came back to Concord. I don't know. I do know that I think they fell apart. I think that it was the end of any semblance of happiness that family could have. And I get it. My family is incredibly sad all the time and it's, it's incredibly difficult. We don't choose to be sad. We don't wallow in our sadness. But I have found in my process here and in grieving Molly that anytime I try to shove any feeling aside, it comes roaring back once my guard is down. And so if I wake up feeling sad, I just have to exist in the sadness. I can have a wonderful day and be sad all day. That duality and duplicity of life that exists after something like losing a child, a part of me will never be okay. Not the kind of okay that I was before she died, because that Barbara can never exist ever. The Barbara that existed before Maura died stopped existing. I had a really hard time trusting my mother. I was so angry. I was so angry. I had gotten home, sort of the same thing. It was, you know, it was about a month after I saw Maura. That day she showed me her scar and everything. It was Terry who Maura was visiting when I pulled up on my bike. They were sitting on Terry's front steps and we sat there and talked all morning. And then I walked her back. It was Terry again who said, Barb, did you hear about Maura? And I'm like, what? And she's like, come here. So I walked over to her house and we walk in the hallway. And I remember the house was dark and we walked into the dining room. There on the table was a newspaper called the Manchester Union Leader. And she opened it up and it said, M. Spellman, 10, dies in Concord. And I read the obituary and I made this, I made this squealing sound and I cried and cried and I was uncomfortable. Terry and I had been really good friends. And then, you know, popularity comes and we had gotten into different social groups and so I didn't feel as comfortable around her as I had growing up. And I was embarrassed that I was crying, but I was so upset. I couldn't stop. And I went home. We had like a pleather couch in our family room and I laid down on it and I sobbed and sobbed. And my mother came home from somewhere and asked me what was wrong. And I was, I was enraged at my mother. I just screamed and screamed, how dare you? And I remember she called, I might've talked about this in an early on podcast episode. I believe she called my biological father and she was explaining what was going on and they he came over and they tried to explain to me that with medicine and medical issues, that patient privacy is a given and a must. And it was just really hard for me to take. I was 10. You know, the death was hard enough, let alone all the reasons why I wasn't deemed valuable enough in my mind to be a part of it. I understand it now. There was a little girl who passed away from a brain tumor about a month before Molly. She was a year younger and her family was incredibly, incredibly silent about it. They didn't want memorial things. They didn't want a lot of publicity. They didn't want any special anything. They, they very much circled the wagons and closed in and that's what they needed to do. And I would be, I would be remiss to impose upon them my grief process because I couldn't have functioned by myself. I thank 
God that Molly didn't die during something like COVID where nobody could have come and said goodbye to her. That would have been horrifying, horrifying. The openness of her musical and the foundation and all of it, birthday parties at her grave and you know, lanterns on the date of her death and all the things that we do to connect people to Molly, dead Molly, you know, has been super helpful for her friends. I can remember shortly after her death being at CrossFit, one of the men in my CrossFit gym, his daughter was friends with Molly. And he said, I cannot thank you enough for handling it, allowing the kids to come and say goodbye because it just opened up conversation for us. I heard that over and over and over again, that sharing Molly with everyone in those last weeks of her life, last days of her life, and then the funeral and all of this allowed families to have a conversation that was meaningful and valuable and not muddled together and hodgepodge and all of that. I've gone online and Googled trying to find Laura's family and I haven't been super successful, but I do want them to know that I loved her enough and I remember her still, that she's in my book. And she's a huge piece of why I allowed people to come. Because when we found out for sure she was not going to wake up, the first thing I did was call all the schools. I called her elementary school. I called the middle school. I called the high school. And I let all of them know that Molly was never going to wake up and that could children please have an excused absence to come and say goodbye. And staff, anyone that wanted to come say goodbye to come. And of course, I've, I've talked about this a lot. Hundreds of people came. I think close to a thousand people came over the course of the week. Chapter 11, not another Mora. In my never-ending self-flagellation around everything I did wrong that led to Molly's death, I feel like this is one thing I did right. And I think it was right on Kenny and Gracie's level as well. Gracie reveled in the attention. And that sounds sort of selfish and egomaniac, but she was 15. And, and you know, when you're 15, I mean, Taylor Swift's song, 15 is a really hard song. You're at that tender, tender age where you're really, truly almost grown up and really, truly still almost a child. You're equidistant between 10 and 20. That's a tender age to lose your soulmate. And Gracie's friends and the attention that she got because of us being willing to invite the world was a huge piece of how she got through those first traumatic weeks when Kenny and I were really utterly absent for her. How are you anything but when you've lost a child? So that's a piece of the chapter. This is Motherland. I'm holding it up for those of you that can't see. And the reason I want this book to make a New York Times bestseller list isn't because I feel like my story is worthy of public adoration, not at all. What it's worthy of is connecting everyone, moms, dads, sisters, friends, brothers, relatives, strangers with child loss and what it's like to go through such a horrifying thing. I call it Motherland because on one end is Molly's death and at the end of the book is Jack's birth, right? Everything that happens in between a tragedy and a, and a triumph is motherland, this vast country of motherhood. When I picture motherland as a country, it's like big sky Montana. You can see for miles, but there are buttes and mountains and prairies and tundras, all of it. And that's motherland. And so I would love for you to buy it and read it or borrow it from someone if you don't, you know, if you don't have money in your budget to, to spend on books, I get it. And then if you do buy it, give it to someone to read that might benefit from it. Not again, because I, I think I have some massive value as, as Barb Higgins, but mostly because as a mom, a mom with two babies in heaven and two here, I'm willing to be a voice and a shoulder for anyone that might need it. And this is what brings me comfort now. I mean, I have my days of rage, days of, you know, wanting to be drunk, 
but I'm so much better now. I can really truly live life day after day after day without medicating myself, without self-hatred. And part of it is the process of writing this book with Virginia and telling the story and having others read the story. That's my episode today. Maura, Maura Spellman, a sweet, sweet, wonderful little girl that got 10 years here on planet earth and made my life a lot better. I'll never forget her. So there's that. All right. So as always, be good to yourself. After you're done being good to yourself, be good to someone else and have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.